Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker of Sleater Kinney, the punk rock group which formed in Olympia, Washington in 1994, has a new record out called Path of Wellness. It marks both their 10th album and their first since 1996 without longtime drummer Janet Weiss. The trio became a duo back in 2019 over creative differences. But in the absence of Weiss remains an irrepressible spirit, a sound born out of the Riot Girl movement that illuminated, as the great Jessica Hopper writes, what it means to be alive, queer, feminist, and disgusted by America. Ten records in, the band continues to illuminate and to fight. Here's a bit from the title song of Sleater Kinney's latest, Path of Wellness.
This album was made during the summer of 2020 in Portland, Oregon, as the city experienced mass protests, wildfires, and a raging pandemic. As the world began to change around them, Carrie and Corin got to work. The ritual and routine of making music had a regenerative effect, a way of processing this turbulent period. The result, a record now available wherever you listen or buy or stream your music. It's called Path of Wellness. And this is Leader Kenny. Corin Tucker, Carrie Brownstein, how are you two? Good. I'm good. Is, are those real answers or, or are you are you actually good? I mean, <laughs> I think I'm good right now. Yeah, I actually, yeah, I would rate it like a real good, not just like polite good. I would say I'm good. I took a quiz on the New York Times website today. It, it was about, it's the opposite of languishing, thriving. Anyway, it was maybe like a, a quiz. It was very unlike the New York Times. It felt like something that you would maybe read on a website, like a, just, or like a blog or like BuzzFeed. And I was only at 51 out of 100. But I would say right now, I'm at like a 75 <laughs> and on the thriving scale. I am so curious because when this pandemic started, there were a lot of articles being passed around about Shakespeare writing in the pandemic. And my friend Jeremy O'Harris wrote a good line that I liked. And he said, the pandemic is not a residency, despite what people may think. And yet, this record is born out of these conditions. And I want to go to two quotes from from both of you. Corin, you said um, during the pandemic, it was hard to watch my kids go through it. I could rest on my memories. Carrie, you said, I thought, I can't get out of bed right now. I don't know what I'll be making. I started worrying that I no longer had a sense of what was happening in the world. Let's start with where you both were at in that moment as you decide to make this thing. There was a feeling of personal privilege and luckiness right at the beginning, right? Because we were in Europe on tour when the pandemic started going. And it was weird because we we did have these great European shows. Every show was like, great audiences hugging and kissing and, oh, it's so good to see you. And, you know, and meanwhile, it was like, oh, there's this weird thing happening in in Italy. You're not going there, right? And we, you know, it just, the news just kept getting worse and worse. And we were finishing our tour and our last show was in Dublin. And I remember hearing on the news, the first case happened in Dublin and we were like getting on the airplane. So we got out kind of like right in the nick of time. Carrie? I think what I meant by not being able to imagine the audience is sometimes when you're writing, like when we started writing this record, we were still hoping to go on tour with Wilco. It was supposed to happen in the summer of 2020. And they were these outdoor shows in amphitheaters. And I imagined bucolic settings and people on blankets and just this kind of pleasant, languid kind of summer vibe, but very communal and outdoors. And and so we were writing songs 
for that environment. We were writing songs for, for crowds and togetherness and for people who aren't alone and don't want to be. And then all of a sudden this insularity and isolation was imposed upon us, but we still had these songs that sounded like they were reaching out to hold figurative hands of other people. And I think we stayed on that trajectory as a way of finding some kind of solace. Because for a while I thought, well, what if all these, these, these lives and these audiences don't exist anymore? What if there's this narrowing that eventually becomes just a darkness, just an end? You know, there, early on we had so little information that it was quite frightening you know, I think it's hard to remember those early days now when it felt surreal to go into a grocery store and be wearing a mask for the first time and to be afraid to touch anything. You know, there was a real sense of fear. So it was hard to keep writing and keep creating for a world that I didn't really understand momentarily. There was a disconnect, I guess. But that writing for a large space for an audience was kind of what kept us going. I think we had a lot of worries about what's going to be on the other side of this thing. But honestly, I do feel like more than that, we had hope in, you know, in what we were doing and a belief in it. More than anything else, it was, this record was for us, I feel like. You know, we really wanted to keep making music and it was like keeping us sane during total chaos. And it was this kind of imaginary world where in our minds, we were like, we are going to get to those blankets, those, that amphitheater, God damn it. You know, it's the last thing we do. We're going to make this record, you know? And, and like, and that like kept us going was that, that kind of imaginary world that we were building with the music. And so we just focused on that, you know? I like this idea of the blankets being the saving grace. Exactly. And it's so unlike Slater Kinney, like that sort of coziness. It's really, that's that's not an adjective that feels akin to this band. But I think we have always found comfort in each other and in like the fact that we could rely on each other during this time. So that I think has always been at the core of it is this sense of wanting to protect and preserve what we have. I think Corin's right in that I didn't know what was going to come of it, but it was nice to just get together and sort of be in a bubble with someone who is one of my oldest friends and one of my best friends and just make something for the sake of making it that day. You know, just ritual and routine became so important because so many of those things had changed, but writing is something we've done for years. And so it was one of the few consistent things we had. It's true. Blankets and Slater Kenny really don't go hand in hand. And and yet it does bring up this idea of shifting identities for your group. And I know you both self-produced this record. And I wondered why you both felt the need to do that now. Well, I think there was an element of the pandemic that made things really tricky for making this record. I mean, logistically, it was very hard to get people into the studio, right? Like, there was talk of like, well, if we bring this person in and quarantine them, it was it was just logistically difficult, for sure. 
But also, I think as we got deeper into the record and, you know, the amount of time that we spent working on the songs, even before we we went into the studio, we realized we had basically put in that kind of work ourselves in terms of the pre-production. I also think that, you know, you brought up identity and I feel like on our last record, you know, the lens through which people listen to it, well, first of all, you can't control that lens. You know, people are coming at it subjectively and with expectations that we can't dictate. But ostensibly all of our records were through the lens of a producer and depending on their imprint on the album, it sort of affects the way people hear it. And obviously on the last one with St. Vincent, with Annie Clark, we were really proud of that record, but, but that was part of the narrative. And it just felt like for this one, where we had kind of come out on the other side of a huge change, you know, with our longtime drummer, Janet Weiss, leaving the band, that I think we just wanted to not have the listening experience sort of filtered through anyone but ourselves. It was kind of just a rebirth of just saying, Here's the, here are the songs, judge and listen as you will. We hope these songs find you where you're at right now. They may not. They might find you later or never, but this is us. So I think we also just wanted that, I guess, nakedness, you know, that, that sort of vulnerability. But I think just from a technical standpoint, we also were just really proud of all the work we had done. You know, we had written bass lines. We had written the keyboard parts. It, you know, it, we had figured out how the arrangement of the songs. We thought, well, what, what would a producer do? Why would we let someone else put their stamp on this when, you know, 20 years into a band, we kind of know what we're doing. Let's, let's try it. You start this group in your 20s. You're now in your 40s. Has the reason why you both feel compelled to make music changed? I would say that the fundamental reasons why I want to make music are kind of the same, that I think that it's really good for my mental health. It's just something I I found is like my most rewarding outlet for my emotions and my thoughts and just processing my own life, you know? And I I happen to be lucky enough to have found an audience that connects with that. And it's been like such a huge joy. I mean, I think part of it is it always is a challenge. You know, we always do try something different. And I think the writing challenge for me is really important intellectually and emotionally to always like keep growing. So it's just something that I feel like I really enjoy and I need to do as a person. I mean, I feel burdened sometimes by my own neuroses or loquacity and 
I think music is a way for me to get past those things and just communicate with people outside of that kind of everyday discourse and the the kind of white noise that that can gather collectively or just in my own head. You know, the the songs are are the songs and when we're playing them there is just a real line or thread between myself and the other people on stage and the people in the audience. And I think that kind of connection is really important. There is a sacredness to music for me that is perennial. But I think that the way that I approach it with gratitude is definitely newer. I think when I was younger, it just felt like catharsis and it can still be catharsis, but I think there is just an intention to it where you realize it is kind of about doing the work and persevering and having to kind of navigate a lot of, you know, your own internal criticism and other people's criticism and just kind of keep at it because it feels like a challenge worthwhile. It feels like a duty that I want to fulfill, I think. Both of you have described the therapeutic power of making music. And I'm thinking back now to 1993, as you both traveled to Australia to kind of invent the voice of this band. Did making music have that same healing quality back then as you were in your early 20s? I mean, I don't think we would have used that language necessarily, but I think that I think that music was helping me through something. And it was maybe through something that was inchoate and that I did not have the words for, you know, just that way that life is a little more desultory in your 20s. And I just wanted, I was grasping, I was, I was a scrappy, angry, young person. And music was a way for me to find a, a language, a way of communicating that I think I, if I did not have, I would have probably been a lot harder on myself and a lot harder on the people around me. And it was also just a way of experiencing joy that I think I I didn't really allow myself in other parts of my life. And I always left everything on this on the stage and I still do. I also didn't have the kind of language that I do now, but definitely I was writing myself out of you know, a darker place to a lighter place. I wrote songs about feeling sad or, you know, looking at injustice in the world. And it always, it always lightened my load. And I knew that even as a young person, right? I was always writing with a sense of storytelling that kind of let go of my worries, even though I didn't really have that kind of complex language about those feelings that I would now. Yeah, I mean, if you think of it like, in the early years, you're like carving your name into a tree and you just want to be seen and heard. You just want someone to discover that you exist and to appreciate the fact that you are there. And you might return for a couple albums into that same, you know, those same letters in the tree. And then eventually you're like, oh, wait, but there's a whole tree here. And then you spend the other albums examining the bark, you know, and the rings and the leaves, but you're still always on that same journey of just like restating the theme, but eventually, hopefully from other perspectives. I go to this time because I wondered in looking back, was there a moment where you thought maybe this is working? 
I definitely, I have that moment for you, Sam. We were playing a show in Adelaide, Australia. We had taken the overnight bus to Adelaide to, to live in the upstairs of this hotel, in quotation marks, where you like sleep in the pub and play in the bar. That was the kind of, it was so Wild West. I loved it. We just borrowed a bunch of equipment and there was this heavy metal band that was also playing the show that we were doing. They were called Bell Jar. And we borrowed their amps and they had all of these like huge heavy metal, like giant stack amps. And we suddenly were playing this song, Be Your Mama on stage. And the sound just like exploded on stage and people reacted. I mean, like five people that were at the pub that night, like started jumping up and down. And I literally was like, oh my God, this is, this is, a, this is a rock band. It was like that very electric connection with the audience. I just felt it. I could taste it in my mouth. And I was like, this is something bigger than anything I've ever experienced on stage. It was really exciting. I also love that moment. I remember when we had our first practice space in a storage unit outside of Olympia in a town called Lacey off Slater Kinney Road. And, you know, it was where most people just stored excess items from their homes or their boats or the dead bodies. I don't know. People just put stuff in storage spaces, but certainly not where you should be practicing, but it was very cheap. And so we would just line the walls with, you know, mattresses and those kind of eight crate foam things. And I had been working on this song and it was, I want to be your Joey Ramone. And I had a verse and then Corin came in and I played it for her and I said, okay, well, and then you sing over the chorus. And so we got to the chorus and she starts her singing, which is kind of like this yelping. First it's like, yeah, yo, I want to be your Joey Ramone. And then I start just doing this weird, wow, wow, over it. <laughs> and it was really the first time that, because we had this self-titled album that had, you know, sort of just been a document of our time in Australia. But this was the first time that we had really combined this strange, like, singing style. And I just, I thought, oh, this is very different than anything we've done. And I just, I haven't quite heard anything like this. And it just seemed to, it was like unlocking the next level of Slater Kinney. And, you know, we obviously utilize that on the song called The Doctor and on, on many other songs. And for years, actually, we never sang the same words together. Now we do that all the time as if it was <laughs> some big discovery that bands have been doing since the beginning of time. Like, hey, why don't we sing the same lyrics together? Um, we could even harmonize. But we were like, no, we each have a story to tell. And we're going to sing it and say it at the same time, which I love. But that was the moment that that happened for the first time. And it did feel kind of magical. This is I Want to Be Your Joey Ramone off the record called The Doctor from 1996.
Before you two created Sleater Kinney, there was just a passion for music. And if you don't mind, I'd like to revisit these two events in childhood where I think each of you fell in love with the art form. Carrie, for you, I believe this happened during a Madonna concert, right? Yes. I mean, I was only in fifth grade and it was her Like a Virgin tour. I mean, it's hard now, I guess, to really convey how kind of radical Madonna seemed uh, at the time. The wedding dress, the, the Like a Virgin song, like it was very wild. And there's a really embarrassing moment of me crying on my bed to my mom that I would never meet Madonna. <laughs> my mom having to comfort me about that. It's like, what a weird thing to make your parent comfort you. Like, oh yes, I'm so sorry. What a tragedy. But the whole experience of that for me, I think the care that I took to be a fan, like the kind of dedication, we stood in line at Ticketmaster. We had to get up at like 4.30 in the morning. My my friend's mom took us. The trade-off was that my dad then would take us to the concert. So there was just so many steps to getting those tickets. And I just, I think the ritual of it and the fact that it really took work to kind of just even get to the show, it all was so special. It just unlocked so many things for me. And I remember going to the show with my dad and we were way up in the highest balcony at the Paramount Theater, which is not a big theater in Seattle. It was the first night of the Virgin Tour. And I came home from it and I couldn't sleep. And I remember going into my parents' room and I heard my mom say, it's okay, she's just high. And I had never heard that term before. I mean, I was just a kid. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm high. Like I'm high from this. What does that even mean? And of course I realized like this was really the first thing that had taken me just out of my body that had just elevated and like shined such a bright light on me and on, on my, it was like it illuminated the whole house, the whole world for me. And so, yeah, it was transformative. Corin, for you at age 10, buying a Joan Jett and the Black Hearts record. Buying the Joan Jett and the Black Hearts cassette tape. That was like a really special thing, right? It was like cassettes were huge. It was probably 1982. You know, I was 10 years old and I had a Walkman. That was like a really big deal to own a Walkman and then to have a record that you would put into the Walkman and be able to listen to it in secret on your headphones. Like that felt like I was becoming this totally new person right? Like I was leaving childhood behind and I was communicating with this artist in my mind by listening to her music. And she was like opening this door for me, right? That was like so different than how women were supposed to be acting in like 1982. She was like so badass and she had this really incredible voice and the music to me seemed really heavy and dark. And I just thought it was like really fascinating and cool. And I just wanted to like stay in that moment and be able to listen on my headphones and, and like be alone and, you know, like reimagine what the future would look like for myself, right? Because it just felt like there were suddenly other pathways than I had seen in my life before that moment. And I, I was just really excited by it. We'll be right back after a quick break. 
Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. On the subject of nostalgia, which I think we're enjoying, Carrie, you wrote, Nostalgia is so certain. The sense of familiarity it instills makes us feel like we know ourselves, like we've lived. 
to get a sense that we've already journeyed through something, survived it, experienced it, is so often so much easier than the task of currently living through something. Nostalgia is recall without the criticism of the present day, memory without the pain. Finally, nostalgia asks so little of us just to be noticed and revisited. It doesn't require the difficult task of negotiation, the heartache and uncertainty that the present does. Unfortunately, we are in the present, but we are kind of negotiating or thinking about your past. When you two sit with those early pieces of music, are you able to think back on those early years without the pain? Or does the pain come along with it? I think that there's like a lot of things that happen at once. There's a bit of nostalgia that is just like that excitement of thinking back and the physical you know, ability to listen to a Walkman and listen to music that came out in 1982. But I also think part of growing older is that when you look back on your memories, you are able to reprocess things differently than you are, you know, as like a a 10-year-old or a 20-year-old. You know, I'm 48. And so when I look back on my childhood and I think about those moments and I think about what else was going on in my family or in the world, there is, you know, moments of pain and moments of looking at difficult things that were happening as well and sadness too. And that's okay because, you know, part of memory are having those those moments and those things that you remember. And you do, I think, process them differently as you age. Yeah, I mean, I think almost one of the tasks of making nostalgia sort of work or be as complex as it should be is to move past, I I think, some of that sweetness of it, you know, and to examine it a little more closely, you know, because there is that feeling that you luxuriate in where you're just, you know, enjoying the sentimentality of it, you know, enjoying this glance back at youth or earlier times. But I think if you do sit in it for a while, you know, it's almost like the image starts to shift a little bit and it's, it has that sourness to it as well, which I just, I do think is just a way of reckoning with choices, you know, and just thinking of all the paths sort of not taken in that moment. It's hard not to step outside of it. And I, I think that's why just kind of nostalgia on its own as, as a motivating factor can be a little bit empty. But I think as a, as a way of redefining or growing, it, it can be useful. The other day I was, um, my girlfriend's daughter wanted me to show her all our old videos on YouTube. And it was a very like bizarro world to look at it like that. Cause it's not a journey that I think Corn and I take too often. I mean, I don't know about you, Corn, but I don't, I hadn't looked at that stuff in a, in a long while. And I think watching it through this nine-year-old's eyes, I was like, oh, she was laughing at me. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I guess I, I do look silly. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think sometimes it's also nice to just step back and, and take it, I think, a little less seriously, you know, if, if you can. What did you notice about yourself watching it with that nine-year-old? And what did you notice about Corin? Well, obviously we, we looked a lot younger. You know, you always think of yourself as, yeah, guys, I look the same. Um, I, I mean, that's actually not how I feel a lot of the time. I look in the mirror, I'm like, oh, yes, oldster. But uh, I really did. I was like, oh, wow, 
my girlfriend's daughter really was noticing some eyebrow differences on you, Corin. She was like, what is, what are those eyebrows? I was like, those, that was the nineties. I was like, I, I had to explain what eyebrows looked like in the nineties. Um, but I did see people who, who were, you know, I did see an earnestness there, you know, like there's just such an earnestness that really permeated so much of, of what we did. And it was very sweet. I really just thought, we still are trying on all these roles. Like I just would think about so many songs that Slater Kinney have where, you know, especially in some of our early albums where we talk about kind of almost wearing a cape or, you know, sort of figuratively like putting on the the clothes of someone else and like stepping into someone else's shoes of these roles that we didn't think we were allowed to embody. And I, I kind of see us doing that in the videos, just emulating something else or thrashing around trying to sort of find our way and, I think that was what was most interesting is just realizing like, oh, we were really still looking for it. It's it's just a lifelong process. And I think maybe that's part of the charm of it with this band is that it just, I feel like we're always a little out of step. And I kind of like that. I mean, even now. So, but I really noticed it then. I was like, oh, that's probably not what was so popular back then. <laughs> Corin, does that feel right to you that, that you that you folks are permanently out of step. Absolutely. We still look like, you know, we just stepped into this kind of like NPR world and we're very polite. I think there's a bit of awkwardness to us just as people, you know, we are both a little bit introverted as human beings and it's maybe not what everyone wants in like a performer, you know, it's not like old school, like broad, always happy, you know, it's like we're both really like writers, I think, first and foremost. So it is, it does make this band different, but I also think it makes it special. That NPR characterization, what do you mean by that? Carrie, didn't you send me a meme of the of the NPR skit? Well, the, the other week we did like a radio takeover and we just immediately both started doing our version of radio hosts. <laughs> You know, there, there's no version of Corin and I, like we can only ever be ourselves, I think. And I, I'm just constantly reminded of that and that there is something I think youthful and childlike about the ways that we kind of segue into these roles like, oh, okay. Yeah. We're doing a radio takeover. Well, my, um, <laughs> the thing that I remember from radio is college radio. And so Corin just, at first I was like, wow, you really sound like a DJ on chaos, which was the radio station at the college we went to. And then the longer we went, I was like, oh no, now we sound like that Saturday Night Live NPR sketch. <laughs> yeah. There's a nerdiness, I think, to us that, you know, we're just not going to be able to shake. And you can see when we defy that nerdiness, I think it makes people uncomfortable. Like on, on the images of, from like the last record, which like we're a lot like harsher and stuff. People are like, whoa. And it's like when we sort of, depending on what we try on, I think if it doesn't feel like a thread of that like nerdiness, I think it it jars people because, you know, we are a little uh, bookish, I guess. <laughs> but wasn't that nerdiness there from the beginning? Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. But also the sense of play acting too. Like we're nerds, but we also like to take risks and we also like to have all these different characters that we sort of speak our stories through. We've always tried all these different voices and different looks from the very beginning. I mean, even when you were talking about going back to Australia, some of the some of the looks that we tried on and that we've done over the years, you're like, wow, you know, like that's a really interesting 
choice, you know, and, but I love that. That's part of like being on stage and, and having all these different characters that have all these different stories, you know, is, is that they come with like a package that's usually taking some kind of risk, I think. In 2015, Jessica Hopper and Pitchfork wrote, Sleater Kinney began as a way of recording obscured lives with Riot Girls serving as a catalytic boost. They were women speaking to other women with their songs. They were making art for us. Their records showed that we matter. Their success was emblematic. Their critical validation totemic. Sleater Kinney became a front line, waging a war for a right to be. They pulled us from the margins as they moved into the light. With each word, there was an act of refusal to be quiet, to be the good girl, to play a game set up for us to lose. Their sound illuminated what it was to be alive, be queer, be feminist, be disgusted by America, to lust for a dignity denied, to want to dance and revel in love and resist death. Sleater Kinney didn't mean something. They meant everything. Does that description feel accurate to where you both are at now in your 40s? <laughs> That's a beautiful quote, obviously. I mean, yes. I think living through the pandemic and having to reassess what was important to me and what I wanted to do, this band was, you know, outside of like my family and our safety was like number one, right? It was like we had this music that we were making and it just felt like a beacon of light through what was happening in our worlds. You know, it was very much a homing beacon that I just wanted to return to in terms of like finishing a song and, and being able to make sense of the world and going into the studio. It all felt like absolutely the right thing to do and home base, you know, that's, that's how it felt like to me was like, can I just go back there? Because I feel like it will make everything okay. It is a beautiful quote. And I love Jessica Hopper's writing. And I think the trick always is that there's always been something about Slater Kinney that's been as much symbolic as it is actual. But inside of that are two real people, you know, are humans who, who fluctuate and I think are more interested in becoming than in being. And I think that tension is sometimes hard to navigate, you know, that we all feel this about things we love. You know, it's just like you just want to hold it and for it not to sort of change. But the only thing that's going to happen, the only thing that you could probably really count on is that it will change. And I think that ambiguity is hard. It's hard for the fans and it's it's hard for us, but it, it happens. And so I, I think that intersection between symbolism and realism is is tricky with artists and with fandom. But I think her description of what it means to be a fan of this band is apt, but we're inside that too, though. What does that mean, that you're more interested in becoming than being? I think that for us, to be on the verge to explore those edges and to to be willing to take leaps into the unknown is the challenge that we're always seeking as opposed to stasis. And that to exist in a, I guess, codified version of ourselves is, is to feel limitations. And I, I just feel like if, if, we can, if artists don't take risks, I'm not sure what other 
member of society who would rather have take risks and we don't want our artists to. Seems like the safest people to take risks should be the artists. For a majority of your discography, it, it did consist of the three of you taking risks. And in 2005, you sat down with Spin and they compared the band to a glass. And, and Carrie, this is what you said. And I, Corin, I'm curious how you feel about this. Carrie, you said, if I'm the glass that's half empty, Corin's the glass that's half full, and Janet just smashes the glass. And since Janet is not here, does the glass just not get smashed anymore? Like Carrie was talking about change and about realizing that change is always going to be a part of what you do. We had to kind of, you know, come to terms with that. It was hard. It was difficult, you know, in a lot of ways. You know, I think that we both are dedicated enough to this band and have been for so long that, you know, we were willing to accept it as a challenge. And that did feel like a restart on, you know, writing music and thinking about, you know, how we were going to go forward. I don't think there was ever a question for us that we were going to go forward. I think that there's been negotiating on how to do it, you know, and what the music is going to be like. And I feel like that we've kind of worked our way through it. Yeah, it's hard when, you know, you've kind of moved through the the world in relation to two other people, as this band did for many years. And then to have one person not want to be there anymore. It's sad. It's, it, you know, but I, I also think from just the humanistic perspective, that change is also difficult and, and sad. And I think it was hard on everyone, all three of us. But I think that, you know, if we're talking about the, the glass metaphor, I also think there is a way to make things feel exciting and dangerous but still protect the fragility of the glass. And that's what Corin and I have always done. There's just a way of protecting what we have, and that seems important. And we're willing to, to keep doing that. And I also think that's what I would hope for any entity that changes or splits apart, is that what's left and also what leaves moves forward with happiness and grace and goodwill. This is Complex Female Characters off the new record, Path of Wellness, by Slater Kinney. Well, I like those complex female characters, but I want my women to go down easy. I like those complex female characters, but I want my women to go down easy. I'll keep something in there to please me. I want to stay hooked and for you to tease me. I like those complex female characters but I After 2002 and your 1B record, you went on an arena tour with Pearl Jam. 
And my understanding of the tour, and again, please tell me if I'm wrong, is that it seemed to reinvigorate you both at a time where you needed to be reinvigorated. Carrie, you said, it suddenly made us 10 years into our careers have to prove it every single night. I would literally watch a couple eating a hot dog and be like, if they set that hot dog down and look at me, then we have played a good show. And I'm thinking you both are about to go on tour in August, after the year of all years, I think. Do you both feel like you're going to have to prove it all over again every single night? Always. I always feel that way about every show. And I love it. That's what's the beauty of like the live show is you really actually don't know what's going to happen and what's going to work and what's not going to work. And what I love about working with Carrie is that it'll change every night. No show is going to be the same. We'll try a, a bunch of different things. Yeah, I agree with Corin. I think if you don't have something to prove, you might not want to be on stage. That's my favorite part of being up there. You know, you have to show up. Uh, you have to bring yourself out there and give it all and leave everything on the stage. And I think when people pay money and they bring their their lives and their pain and heartache and joy and everything they have and they, they come to see you, then they deserve to see something special or at least for you to try, <laughs> to try your hardest. If you're lucky, you get to reenter the world right now. It's an immense privilege to do so, I think. And to go to a concert, to put on a concert, is its own kind of privilege and beautiful thing. And I guess I wanted to leave on what this group means to you both in this moment after the year we've had. It feels like after the year that we've been through that um, being in this band and getting to go on tour and actually perform for people is like putting on a life jacket. It feels so, it feels like such a great, like safe thing to do. And that's weird. Like, I don't know why I'm not more scared, but I'm just not, I'm just so excited. I'm like, throw me in the water. I feel safe in this band. Like, I feel like I can chew anything. I can try anything and it's going to be okay. There aren't any rules. And it's just about like, you know, trying to create a, like a moment for people on stage. I just know that we're going to do that at some point. I don't know that everything that we do will be successful, but I'm, we're going to go at it with like everything that we have. I think I would characterize it as a, a life raft of sorts too. And I do feel immensely lucky and that it is an immense privilege to get to play for people. Like I feel so grateful to get to do that and to do that with Corin and knowing that she and I have had such a a long like standing friendship means so much to me and I think the pandemic really just with brutal clarity I think reminded all of us of of what is important and what we and who we need to hold close and to protect and I think to get to walk onto stage with someone who has my back and is invested in, is just sort of unconditionally like cares for me and vice versa. I think, I think I just hope that we take that like compassion and care and spread it 
to the world and spread it to whoever's out there. Like, it sounds so cheesy, but I just really am excited to get to, to play with one of my best friends. I mean, sometimes it's just as simple and basic as that. It's like, what a joy to spend time with people you love, you know? And that's, I think, what a concert is. Sometimes a concert is so much not about, for the audience, not about the band. It's who you're with. You All you remember is what your friend wore that night or what you did beforehand. Like just to have those experiences again where you get to like sit with people you love, that's what this band is for me. It's being with people I love. Well, I'm thanking you in advance for uh, the experiences I think people are going to have. I wish you both good health and really thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Sam. What a pleasure. Carrie Brownstein, Corn Tucker. Stay safe. You too. Thank you. Bye. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Kristen Soman and, of course, Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker. Sleater Kinney's new record, Path of Wellness, is available wherever you get your music. To learn more about their work, visit talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd encourage you to check out past conversations with folks like Brittany Howard, Gloria Steinem, Ocean Vuong, Janelle Monet. Kevin Abstract, Anne Lamott, and Elizabeth Gilbert. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. If you'd like to become a patron of our listener-supported program, visit Patreon.com slash TalkEasy. That's Patreon.com slash talk easy our executive producer is janixa bravo our associate producers are caitlin dryden and nikki spina our lead editor is andre lynn our editor for today's episode is joshua siegel our assistant editors are clarice guevara and eve gershon our interns are callie syringas kaylin ung patrice lee and grace perkins our illustrations are by krishna shenoy video and graphics by ian chang Derek gaberzak orion wong Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. And of course, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We're back Wednesday with a bonus episode featuring author Dave Eggers. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, 
you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.